0: Certainly a great privilege we have collectively this evening to have a word of God, the word of God in our own language, to open, to study together in comparative safety, to contemplate the glories of Jesus Christ. We are immensely blessed this night to be doing what we are doing together. For this session, I was assigned the topic, The Obedient Son. And I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter three, for our foundational text. We will go to many other scriptures in the time allotted We will go to many other scriptures beyond the time allotted, (laughs) just knowing how things go when I do what I do. Matthew chapter 3 beginning in verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Just notice that this is a clear Trinitarian text. The spirit of God comes down upon the son of God and the father affirms his beloved son. It's a passage where you could mine many Christian doctrines out of it. But we're not going to focus on all of those. The baptism of Jesus is a milestone in his life, and it is a milestone in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, as you know, in the first chapter, covered the genealogy of Christ and the birth of Christ extending into the first two chapters. And in chapter 3, he introduced the ministry of John the Baptist, who called sinners to a baptism of repentance. Calling them to repent and to bring forth fruit in their lives. And it was a challenging, direct, confrontational message to those who were dead in their sins. But now, as John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, continues the ministry that the Lord had given to him and which was prophesied by Isaiah, you know, close to 700 years prior. Now, John the Baptist has a candidate for baptism that is unlike any other. And John recognizes that there is an incongruity in what he does and the significance of his ministry and the person that has come to submit for the ministry of John the Baptist and to be baptized. This, in other words, is a momentous occasion, one of deep profound significance that requires deep, profound thought for us to understand the fullness of everything that is in front of us here in this wonderful text. If I could compare this message to a common experience, those of you that have ever flown overseas or flown in a a large, large jet, you know something of the sensation that it, it, the jet takes a long time lumbering down a long, long runway before it gets up enough speed to get up into the air, but once it's up in the air, magnificent things happen and you go to places that far remote from your grounded position and you're into a place not uh, metaphorically speaking of, of stratospheric proportions. That's what we have in this text here tonight, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, this message may seem to lumber along for a while, but it's going toward a liftoff into things that, have, that are of great significance for your personal salvation and for the fullness of the understanding of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us during his life, death, and resurrection. So I want to start with a first point here this evening. I'm not very good with points, and that's all right. I am not a model of exposition for others to follow. But if you're taking notes, I would call the first point from this text that we want to see is the the crucial nature of Jesus' baptism. The crucial nature of Jesus' baptism. This This is a momentous occasion this is a standalone moment for a man of greatly used by God speaking of John the Baptist and John recognized the moment as it happened sometimes we have great moments in life and we only recognize them in retrospect perhaps when you first met your spouse you look back and say oh I didn't know all that that was going to lead to John here recognized up front that there was something significant that was about to take place. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me again as we try to keep our eyes uh, glued to the text for what we have before us this evening. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John for the purpose of being baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John John says, look, this is a reversal of order. This is contrary to the moral order. I myself am a sinner. I should be baptized by you, the righteous one, and you come to me for baptism? Why, my friends? would the sinless Son of God, why would the Messiah of Israel come for a baptism of repentance? Look at what John said earlier in his ministry to the audience that had gathered around him. For example, in verse 7, there in chapter 3, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them these are the, the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees were considered the, you know, the keepers of the law of God and the ones who gave the true interpretation of the law of God. And John sees these religious leaders coming to him and he calls them a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John had supernatural insight to the nature of those who came to him. And he confronts the Pharisees, again, the religious leaders of the day, said, you men are broods, you're a brood of vipers. You have nothing to do with true repentance. You have nothing to do with true spirituality. You need a thoroughgoing repentance despite the position that you hold in our nation. And so, by way of contrast, when Christ comes to him and he hesitates, he, he, he stutters, so to speak says, I need to be baptized by you. This is is not the way that things should be. When you look at Christ, you look at the nature of the ministry of John the Baptist, you look at what his baptism symbolized, a baptism symbolizing an inner repentance, it's an outward manifestation of, of inner repentance. When you first look at this, with any degree of understanding, The person of Jesus Christ and the moment of the baptism by John the Baptist seem to be completely out of harmony. This has no connection whatsoever. This man Jesus, John knew, was holy and undefiled. He had no sins of which he needed to repent. Contemplate that. He's coming for a baptism of repentance with no sins of which he needed to repent. Indeed he insists on undergoing this baptism. Look at there at verse 15 again. Jesus answered him, "Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Jesus prevails on John By a greater authority than John Says this baptism needs to take place In doing so we will fulfill all righteousness And so John humbly recognizes the moment Recognizes that before him is one Whose sandal he is not fit to untie And yet he baptizes Christ In his own act of obedience to Christ It's remarkable We're going to get into it more Now in verse 16, God the Father from heaven recognizes the momentous, crucial nature of this baptism. He takes this occasion to affirm Jesus with an audible voice from heaven. As the Spirit of God comes down upon Christ, the Father says in verse 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now look, beloved, whatever else this passage means, we can recognize that there's something crucially important going on here. Each member of the Trinity is visibly or audibly involved with the occasion. You have a prophesied representative of God performing a God-appointed ministry in the baptism of repentance that he has courageously carried out in the face of opposition and hypocrisy from the religious leaders And you have Jesus himself saying, this needs to take place. Now, for those of us privileged here in the 21st century to have an open Bible in our laps, in our own language, in a place of comparative safety, gathered together, there should be a sense of a holy hush that comes upon us, a holy sense of awe that descends upon us, engendered by that same Holy Spirit, saying, whatever I am reading here is something that is of great transcendent importance. There's something far beyond earth, far beyond my personal salvation, far beyond my personal devotions that is at stake here. This is something in the stratosphere that we consider as we move along. Now, before we go into some greater detail with this text and its theological implications, I want to point your attention to a couple of passages in the book of Acts. If you would turn to the book of Acts chapter 1 for a moment. And just to realize that Scripture recognizes the baptism of Christ as the formal beginning of the public ministry of our Lord... In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, and we're just going to hurry through these texts, Acts chapter 1, in verse 21, the 11 remaining disciples, after Judas had perished, realized that they need to appoint another man to fill his office of apostle, so that there would remain 12 apostles. And so they they set forth the qualifications that are required of the man that would serve as the substitute for that man of destitute spirit. In verse 21, Peter says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning, notice it here, he's describing Jesus' Ministry in an overview fashion and the public ministry of him, he says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. And so he says, whoever's going to serve as an apostle, as an authorized representative of Jesus Christ, one of his uh, formally appointed proxies, whoever's going to do that had to be with us at the beginning when Jesus was baptized by John. It was that essential that one of the apostles, if you were to be an apostle, you needed to have that personal familiarity with the baptism of Jesus, that direct personal involvement at the time. An apostle must have seen Christ from his baptism to the ascension. In other words, the public ministry of Christ is like bookended from the baptism of John TO HIS ASCENSION INTO HEAVEN AS WE READ IN ACTS CHAPTER 1. NOW, LATER, A SIMILAR SUMMARY OF JESUS' PUBLIC MINISTRY APPEARS IN THE SACRED TEXT. LOOK AT ACTS CHAPTER 10 WITH ME. ACTS CHAPTER 10, BEGINNING IN VERSE 37... Peter again, speaking, let's start in verse 36. He says, as for that word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree, and on Peter's testimony goes. We don't need to look into it for our purposes here this evening. The crucial nature of Jesus' baptism is this is that the public manifestation of his redemptive mission started here. Jesus' words and Matthew's gospel help us grasp the significance of that as we're going to see as we move along. But for now, just to recognize that this is no passing matter. This is the the baptism of Christ attested by the Trinity, again, by by the prophetic representative later affirmed in the apostolic ministry after Jesus' ascension, this is of great significance. And so we should expect, given the testimony of the biblical writers and the biblical figures and the words of Jesus himself, we should expect something of theological great significance to be tied up with this baptism perhaps it isn't immediately apparent on the surface of the text if we go deeper into Scripture. And that is what we find if we come to our second point here this evening, which is the crucial purpose of Jesus' baptism. The crucial purpose of Jesus' baptism. We've seen the nature of it. It's his entry into public ministry. That's the... That's the significance of it from a chronological perspective, you might say. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. And as we continue to keep our eyes on the text of God's word, let's look at verse 15 yet again. Taken in isolation. Reading them perhaps for the first time or two as a young Christian. These words in verse 15 seem somewhat perplexing. What does this possibly mean? As Jesus says in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a lot to unpack there. Jesus, over John's objection, says, John, it's fitting for us to do this. To say it's fitting means that this occasion of my baptism, in the words of Jesus, it is suitable to achieve a goal. What might outwardly seem to be incongruous or inconsistent or a reversal of roles here, what might outwardly seem that way is actually perfectly fitted by God to achieve a goal that is consistent with and in furtherance of the entire redemptive mission for which Jesus Christ came to earth. To fulfill all righteousness. The word fulfill means to perform something fully, for it to be completed, to be carried out, to be accomplished. And so... What's happening in this baptism is suitable to carry out a goal for which Christ came. So Jesus tells John it's suitable to baptize him. In that moment, some 2,000 years ago, you can almost, I haven't been to Israel, but you can almost picture the vivid scene in the mind as they're at the river There's this conversation taking place. There's things happening in a heavenly heavenly way. In that picturesque moment, which no doubt passed rather quickly in terms of clock time, they were carrying out a crucial purpose. They had something to achieve, something that had to be accomplished that could be accomplished in no other way. And Jesus says that purpose is to carry out righteousness. To carry out righteousness. Now, those of you that have studied anything about biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, know that it's important to consider the immediate context, to know what a verse means, what a clause means. But here, really... There is is nothing to help us understand what that means here right now in this immediate context of the short narrative that I read. There's no further explanation of what it means to carry out righteousness. Commentators today propose many different theories of what it means, but it doesn't really help so much to know that there are differences of opinion So we're kind of stuck, we're kind of stuck if we just stopped right here, stuck recognizing something of great significance is happening here, something that's necessary for the fulfillment of righteousness that is fitting, and yet in the immediate context, it's really not explained to us by the scripture. I'm reminded of what our brother said in the first session, sometimes the Bible can be really frustrating. (laughs) Frustrating. Why not just say it? Why not just spell it out? God didn't see fit to do that, but we can agree on one thing for sure. You and I need to settle one thing really clearly on our mind that I've already said, but we need to come back to it yet again. Jesus did not need to be baptized for his own sake, Jesus did not need to be baptized to further his own righteousness. He was already perfectly righteous. He carried the eternal righteousness of God as part of his intrinsic essence. He was sinless as testified throughout all of scripture. Already perfect, already sinless. And so he didn't need a baptism of righteousness of repentance. He did not need a baptism of repentance for his own sake. That's really crucial to have clear in our minds. Now, one of the other principles of biblical interpretation is that you not only consider the immediate context, but you also consider the more remote context. You consider what you see elsewhere in the same book by the same biblical writer to help you understand Something that may not be clear, something that may be obscure early on, might be unfolded for you if you just continue to read the same book and think about things in light of what is said subsequently. And let the same biblical writer, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, help explain what seems obscure at the start. Well... I think that we get some help on the meaning of this baptism from Matthew chapter 5, if you would turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, as as the 777 of this message continues to lumber down the runway... We're picking up speed, though, aren't we? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, and he will soon be contradicting those selfsame Pharisees with his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, rebuking them for their false interpretations of God's law. Jesus says in verses 17 and 18, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Hmm. Jesus, in his own words, after his baptism is saying that somehow, whatever else this passage means, and you can preach a half dozen messages on verses 17 to 20 and just barely be getting started. Somehow, whatever else this passage means of what Jesus says here in chapter 5, somehow he came to earth to fulfill the law and the prophets with absolute precision so that nothing would be left out, So that everything that was required by the law and the prophets under the headship, you might say, of Moses and Elijah, everything that had been said for the prior 1,500 years had to be fulfilled and had to be fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, this is a total tangent with what I'm about to say. But if you read the New Testament with an eye toward the significance of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, you will be absolutely astonished at how often the biblical writers base the gospel, base the truth, base their writings on what as, as being that which was consistent with what the law and the prophets said. If you miss that in the New Testament, you're really missing something really profoundly important. Jesus' life and ministry does not happen in a revelatory vacuum. It does not happen independent of what had taken place by God's spokesman over the prior 1,500 years. There was this process of continuing revelation taking place that was pointing to Christ, that was requiring righteousness, establishing God's moral law, And the momentum of that was building for a millennia and a half. The the fullness of the picture was being rounded out. And now Jesus Christ steps into that prophetic unfolding and says, I'm here to fulfill it all. That's breathtaking. That is astounding for a man to stand before us in human flesh and say you know the prior in speaking in English terms you know the 39 books of the old testament you know the law and the prophets and the moral law the 10 commandments and all of the ceremonial law and everything else that the law of god requires i'm here to bring it all to pass that 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 alone is a stunning claim to deity if you think through it all He came to do what the Old Testament had in mind. And it could be no other way because the law could not be abolished. It cannot be abolished. But again, we're confronted with this conundrum. The law has to be fulfilled and yet Jesus didn't need to fulfill it personally for himself Because he was already perfect. He was already righteous. What's going on here? What's going on here? Let's cut to the question. How could the baptism be involved in the fulfillment of righteousness? Let's rephrase the question. For whom did Jesus submit to the baptism of John? For whom did Jesus keep the law? Oh. Let's look at another text from Matthew's gospel, just continuing on as we frame these questions and we start to feel some lift under the wings. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25 Jesus called his disciples over to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I believe, beloved, that in this verse we see that which helps to bring out the fullness of what Jesus was doing as he submitted to baptism, the fullness of what he was saying there in Matthew chapter 5. And if you think about it, just as it's difficult for us as an early reader of Scripture for the first time, to understand what's being said, it makes perfect sense that when Jesus is just embarking on his public ministry, that something of such profound significance as fulfilling all righteousness could only be laid out and planted as a seed in the soil of the hearts of those who heard. It could only be planted as a seed because they had nothing. They had no They had no paradigm by which they could understand the fullness of what was being said. So that, as we continue reading on in Matthew, it starts to open up to us. Look at what Jesus said again there at the end of verse 28. The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. He who would be great would be a servant. Beloved, Jesus throughout everything we've been reading has been on a divinely appointed mission of redemption. He's on a mission to redeem sinners. He's here to serve others. He came to purchase and deliver sinners like you and me so that those sinners could be reconciled to a holy God. What we have to see here, and now the plane is soaring off into orbit. The entire life of Jesus Christ, along with his death, was one great collective redemptive act for others. As he obeyed the law of God, he was not obeying it for himself, he was obeying it for others. He was obeying it for His people. As part of His mission sent into the world, He rendered perfect obedience to the law. And beloved, He did that not for His own sake, but as a gift of love, as a representative for His people. He rendered an obedience to all that God required. All that the law of God required, all of the fulfillment of prophetic requirements and predictions. He did it all as a representative for his people. It is stunning to consider. If it was only a matter of shedding his blood on the cross, he could have done a three day mission. He could have come down on Friday, like I flew in today. Done the work, gone back to heaven, and avoided the complete inconvenience and condescension and humiliation of the prior 30 years. The reason he didn't was because those 30 years were part of the fulfillment of his redemptive mission. The law of God must be obeyed. The law of God must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled in every way by everyone that would ever go to heaven. And you and I, we can't do that. We haven't done that since Adam. It has been an impossibility. Our first father, Adam, fell and with with him, all of the rest of us did also. Thrown into irretrievable ruin. Born into depravity, born into unrighteousness as our inherited nature, and then we live out our own 70 years or whatever the Lord gives us, and we add our own contributions to the accumulated sins of mankind dozens, hundreds of times a day, a week, you choose the time frame. We're a guilty lot. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What Scripture teaches in the fullness of everything that it says is that in salvation, we are joined in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that union with Christ, we get the benefit, we get the credit for everything that he did. He lived a life of perfect obedience. We get the credit for that. He died a death to pay for sin. We get the credit for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His obedience... We get the credit for it. His shed blood, we get the credit for it. All of our sin, he gets the debit. He gets the debt, and he paid it. All the wrath that we deserved, he took the cup and drank it to the full, down to the last drop. This is so remarkable it's so humbling it's really difficult for us to begin to get our minds around the fullness of what it of what it says but throughout his life jesus obeyed the law perfectly in john 8 46 he could look at his his opponents his enemies and say which one of you convicts me of sin total silence they had nothing to say Hebrews chapter 4:15 says, "He's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." Why does that matter to you and me today? Why is this so important for, for a stable theology of the atonement, a stable theology of salvation? Why does this matter? It's because we are not righteous. Romans chapter 3, I invite you to turn there with me. I have this noted in my notes, and you might as well get the benefit of it since I put it down there, right? In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, the apostle Paul, at the conclusion of his entire section, declaring and explaining and enforcing the wrath of God on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, on Jew and Gentile alike. says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." Mankind, lost. We, collectively, have not kept the law of God. And our guilt is so great that Paul says, each one of us must be silenced. There is no boasting before God in light of the loftiness of his law and our multiplied failures against it, both in not doing what it requires and in doing what it forbids. You see, beloved, Paul goes on to say there in Romans chapter 3, if you look at it in verse 27, we're skipping over (laughs) one of the pinnacle texts to, to point this out, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works, no, but by the law of faith. Paul says, in light of our sin, there is no boasting to be had before God. In light of the fact that redemption is found by grace alone, in Christ alone, received through by faith alone, there is no boasting to be had. We are utterly leveled before the truth of Scripture. Our pride is obliterated. All we can do is take our right hand and put it over our mouth and put ourselves in a place of holy hush and silence before a holy God and say, by what possible means then can I be saved? You have no obedience of your own to offer. You've broken his law instead. You lack what is required. You cannot pay what is owed. How do we solve that dilemma? Turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Now, tomorrow morning we will see the suffering son and talk about the, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. That's not the focus for this message. This is kind of preliminary to that. But after First and Second Corinthians, you come to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Where we read that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then in Romans, chapter 5. Verse 19, you don't need to turn there, just jot it down and look it up later for the sake of time. Paul making a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam, explaining how Adam's disobedience threw everyone into sin and lostness, and how Christ, through his obedience, made life possible for the many. We read in Romans 5 verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Theologians sometimes refer to what we're talking about tonight as the active obedience of Christ. And there are those who have labored mightily To undermine this doctrine. I am not party with them. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, the active obedience refers to his whole life of obeying the law of God, whereby he qualifies to be the Savior. In our redemption, his righteousness is imputed to us, which righteousness he would not have had if he did not live this life of perfect obedience. Adam was born with responsibility to obey. He sinned and failed. We inherit Adam's state of works, sin, and failure. But beloved, and this sins metaphoric, if not literal, cheerles up and down my spine to say what I'm about to say. We are born into Adam, born into all that he did as our representative. And what he did as our representative was was sin and failure and led to death. To be in Christ, to be saved, is to be transferred into and under a second head in Christ, a second head, a second Adam whereby Christ obeyed perfectly and receives a full reward rather than sinning and being kicked out of the garden and so beloved when he saves you when Christ saves any sinner that sinner inherits the full merit of all that he did And we are credited with a righteousness not our own. Credited with a righteousness of the full obedience of Christ during his earthly life. And we are credited us with that. And our status with God is based on that. Now understand, that's a far bigger statement than it might seem to be. Our status before God is based upon the righteousness of Christ Himself. The full obedience that he gave to the law is credited to us. John MacArthur says, Adam disobeyed God, and his disobedience was counted for condemnation to all who were in him. In the same way, Christ obeyed God, and his obedience was counted for righteousness to all who are in. Him. The imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness have a basis in the actual lived-out actions of Adam and Christ. End quote. What does that mean? It's wonderful to sing songs that glorify Christ and speak about how we belong to Him. It's important for us to understand the theological basis upon which we express that joy and not let not simply let the 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 good emotions of fellowship and music be a substitute for understanding the basis upon which we are counted righteous in Christ beloved We are justified in Christ, not due to our lives and behavior, not because we keep the law for ourselves. We are justified, and the ground of our justification is the righteousness of Christ Himself, lived out in perfect obedience to that law, which must be fulfilled to the utter iota and the utter stroke of the law. God counts that worthy life to our benefit in Christ. Think about it this way, beloved. We did not die for our own sins, but Christ did. We get the benefit of that in like manner. We did not obey the law. Christ did. And in an incredible transaction of grace and kindness and mercy and love, God grants us the benefit of everything that Christ did and accepts us on that basis. You see, in justification, God does not simply declare you not guilty. Justification is more than just as if I had never sinned even though it's a clever mnemonic device. No, in justification, God declares the believing sinner fully righteous as having fulfilled all of the law of God. And He does that on the basis of the obedience of Christ reckoned to your account. God, let me say that again, God accepts the obedience of Christ to your benefit, in lieu of your disobedience, this has massive implications that I'm going to get to in just a moment. So, when Jesus told John the Baptist it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness, he was indicating that that act of baptism, which he did not need, was an essential part of the obedience which his own people did need. And so he acted as a representative for others. He was serving his people as he underwent that baptism. In other words, Christ's obedience in baptism was part of a comprehensive whole of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which just two chapters later, he said he came to do. It was an aspect of his redemptive mission. Well, that leads us to a third point here. The obedience of Christ and you. The obedience of Christ and you. If this filters through in your thinking and you come to embrace these things, it will utterly transform your sense of assurance of salvation It will utterly stabilize your unstable thinking in these ways because this has a practical implication for the way that you understand the salvation that you have in Christ. Beloved, perhaps I'm speaking in very basic terms with what I'm about to say, but sometimes it's the basics that we most need Football teams fail for the lack of the basics of blocking and tackling. Christians fail for the lack of understanding of these basic things that I'm about to describe. The doctrine of justification, justification as explained in the Westminster Catechism that God pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous, For the sake of his son, that's a short synopsis. All of our sins are pardoned and God accepts us as righteous. Understand this. Justification is not that Christ washed away your sins up to the point of conversion with his blood. And now it's up to you to keep the law. So you get the past erased, but you're just left in a state of innocence and you got to carry it out going forward that's not justification that's not christian salvation and a lot of us even if we would deny that in a practical in a in an abstract theological sense in a practical way we're so tied up with our whether we're obeying or not that we tie our assurance around that completely missing the ground of our justification Justification tells us instead that Christ took our penalty for sin and he also kept the law perfectly on our behalf. You and I who are in Christ, we stand before God. We stand in the, in, if, you, if I can use this language and metaphor, we stand in the holy courtroom of God. Where others should fear to enter, we stand in the courtroom of God with full and bold and confident access, Ephesians 3.12. In Christ, we have bold and confident access in him because justification tells us that Christ took our penalty for sin and he kept the law perfectly on our behalf. We stand before God, united with Christ in all the perfection and satisfaction that he made. How does that impact your day-to-day thinking about your walk with Christ your, as you walk through this world, as you still stumble and sin, as we all do in many ways, James chapter 3? Well, let me just mention a few. This is, this, again, this is just, this is like having the, be below zero outside and someone throws the windows open. There's just this bracing cold that comes through that awakens you and refreshes you. You're starting to understand this when you understand this. At the initial moment of your salvation, you are as completely justified as you will ever be. Because your subsequent good works do nothing to contribute to your righteous standing with God. It is all your righteous standing with God is all premised on the perfect righteousness of Christ, period, full stop. It's not his good, it's not his righteousness and a contribution from yours, it's his righteousness alone. Stated differently, If you are justified now, you will certainly be justified on the final day. That's because justification was, is, and always will be based on Christ's obedience and none of yours. And at the initial moment of our conversion... When the Spirit of God grants us faith and repentance, and God draws us to his Son, at that very moment, the full obedience of Christ is credited to your account, and that cannot be improved upon, and it cannot be taken away, it cannot be diminished. And so, if you remember the day of your conversion, as I do, not everybody does, it's not always that clear. I'm no more justified today than I was at noon on November 20, 1983, because the full obedience of Christ was credited to my account. And this gives us confidence as we think about the day of judgment. In Christ, you will never be cast away. You need not fear life. You need not fear the deathbed. You need not fear the throne of God himself. God has already said, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ, then you are embraced by that heavenly declaration. If God accepts the son and you're in the son, he accepts you just like he accepts his own son. We are in him. We are forgiven. We are declared righteous. We are accepted in the beloved, adopted into his family, fully redeemed, one day to see him face to face and to be made like him because we will see him as he is. So you see, beloved, All that Christ did for us, it was so much more than the three hours of suffering on the cross. It was three decades of obedience rendered as a servant on behalf of his people. That's why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and... That's what God requires. Faith in Christ is what God requires. It's the only thing that he accepts... And as a result of that, to be in Christ means that you, you will never be cast away. You could never be cast away under any circumstances whatsoever because all that God requires has been fully and completely done for us by our great brother in heaven. J. Gresham Machen was one of the greatest theologians of the early 20th century. He suddenly became ill, and it was apparent that he was going to die much, much sooner than he expected, even a few short days beforehand. He texted his friend, and as he was facing death, he said this. He said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Is that righteousness of Christ your hope? What you're trusting in? As he shed his blood to wash away your sin Do you see that the blood and righteousness of Christ Stand as as dual security doors That mean that you could never be let out And nothing could be let in to take you away from his glory? Let's pray together Gracious Father Father we honor you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his shed blood, yes, and we look forward to seeing that tomorrow. Tonight, we thank you for the fullness of his perfect obedience and how you cover us in that. You impute that to us as a, as a free and gracious gift that secures our souls for all of eternity. To you and to you alone we give the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.